Welcome back, listeners. This is Ravi from the Fraud Technology Podcast. I'm happy to be back here again. As you can see, I have a change of setting doing an outdoors recording today. You may have some noises. Hopefully, I can edit it out, but I love the setting. I wanted to bring that out into the podcast itself. And for today, we have Varun Wanka from Upgrade. He has a lot of experience in the fraud space itself. So I wanted to bring him on board and hear to some of his insights fighting the fraud itself. Welcome, Varun. Would love to know a little bit about you and how you ended up in the fraud space itself. Thank you for the detailed <laughs> introduction, Ravi. I can see that you're in a different setting and it seems very pleasant, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, coming back to me, I've actually joined Fraud Space around six years ago, you could say. And before that, I was mostly in the technology space. But coming to the fraud, one thing that really interests me is there is new learnings every day. When I initially started it out, I would say I'm new to it, especially on the financial side and learning about how does a card not present work and everything was pretty new to me. But then I was lucky to have a really good mentors at that time who had patience to teach me everything about fraud, to be honest. But also with my background experience from technology, it really helped me to get quicker in fraud because as data is a key factor in fighting the fraud. So that kind of helped me to jump quickly. And with the use of data and analytics, try to get into those, what do you say, nitty bitties of finding, hey, where could I actually find the fraud and everything. But and after that, joining Upgrade, it's a medium startup right now. It's a good experience because I'm learning a lot of different kinds of fraud and I've been enjoying it for now. Wonderful. I see a lot mm -hmm. of people or space coming from the tech background, yeah, especially around SQL and like database side itself, which I'm guessing is also your background, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I also see quite a few people with that background doing really well in the fraud space itself. So can I understand a little yeah. bit about what exactly you do? You're a fraud analyst, right? So do you build yeah. the models or do you actually analyst when alerts come in, you investigate them? Exactly. So the models like an analyst, we have a data science team over here who does yeah. the whole thing. But you could say as like a second tier where we work, we use the models because models, they work really well, but it doesn't really always catch the changing fraud trends. Let's say you have like many transactions coming on and there's a model that builds where there is individual scoring for each transaction, but then it could not always happen like that. There is a sudden change where the fraudsters could get a hold of a lot of credit cards or anything, and they could actually do like legitimate transactions and the model wouldn't have been trained for it yet. So that's where we come in to see, hey, okay, I see a pattern over here that the model isn't catching it. So let me first investigate it and see if we would able to catch it better. Okay. And also if we think that, okay, this is seems to be like a new pattern that we did not notice that before. That's when we go to the modeling team or anyone saying that, hey, I think this is a new pattern. Maybe we need to train the model in a different way so that it could catch this fraud pattern. But okay. the problem with this is it keeps changing. So we can't always like telling, hey, this is a new fraud pattern, go and change the model. That couldn't happen always. So yeah. I think as a fraud analyst and as a data science team, we have to collaboratively work to make sure both of us are up to date in running the models and share each other's knowledge so that we could mitigate some of the fraud risk. I know we couldn't completely remove it, but at least reduce those fraud losses. I understand. So you talked mm -hmm. about modeling, giving a scoring for each 
transaction and based on yeah. that scoring something is decided with that's fraud and i'm assuming that above a score threshold it is considered a alert and actually comes to the mm-hmm. fraud alert team so that's the yeah. process okay all right when an alert comes to you then you investigate that and then you decide whether it's a false positive or true hit, right yeah but that doesn't really work on the transactional side because oh. there are like billions of transaction but usually that happens on the onboarding and uh, okay. if you have to catch any identity fraud or account takeover that's usually the process but for transactional fraud we have to figure out like hey if there is a pattern coming from those models let's say i shop at a regular store nearby my house but then my transactions start popping up at brazil or somewhere and the pattern keeps changing like that hey there are transactions coming from brazil and then argentina and from different countries so we have to figure out oh so there seems to be like a new pattern where they're using a merchant in brazil to do some kind of an attack over there okay so this would be the modeling team doing it or would the analyst team be doing this so usually the modeling team what they do is they would run this model but the model has to perform really well where it could say that okay if this guy does his transactions every day at a local store but then suddenly a transaction popped up at brazil like how did the score jumped up we don't want like an immediate jump to because i might be traveling there so all those factors come into the picture and then the fraud analyst like us we what we do is we determine hey if this is actually a fraud pattern in there like seeing multiple because we just don't focus on one customer we focus on like hundreds and thousands and then see that okay if there is actually a fraud pattern and this is truly a fraud or is just a false positive that actually a customer is traveling there and we are good to go Okay, maybe let me take a step back then. So you mentioned that there is a difference in how it is done for onboarding and ATO versus a transaction. So how is a setup done for transaction fraud? How do you go about, because you have billions of transactions that are happening, right? Yeah. How do you yeah. go about which ones to investigate? So typically we don't do here on a customer by customer basis. Okay. So we typically tend to see how the fraud pattern is coming up like it could be either coming from a zip code or it's either coming from a specific merchant. So these days what's happening I think it's across the industry is the fraudsters are trying like a bin attack process. So they choose like a specific bin. So a bin is the first six digits of our credit card number. Oh okay, wonderful. So these days what's happening is the fraudsters they're using like a sophisticated bot attack to target a particular bin as i was saying like bin is the first six digits of your credit card number and it is a unique for each financial institution and every financial institution might have multiple bin numbers too okay the bigger the financial institution there are multiple bin numbers and yeah so what's happening with these the frosters are they are clever too so what's happening is they would choose like a vulnerable merchant where they don't have many controls in place it could be like a mom and pop store or it could just be a regular high merchant too discord like or an online one or a physical one not it could one. be both oh it is both but okay. mostly they would do like a card not present transactions okay. so what okay. happens is they get these first six digits they choose one of those bin numbers mm-hmm. and then they use this vulnerable merchants to write like a sophisticated bot program and what happens is they try like multiple different combinations because they only have the six digits right so they'll just tell the program to run those permutations and combinations to match a number and then run it through this merchant it could be like a dollar or 2 dollars but within a span of 5 minutes there could be like 5000 transactions or 10000 transactions coming in and what's happening over here is almost 80% of them won't go through if you think about it because they're just trying all those combinations and numbers yeah yeah and 
if you think about it for the card not present you need like an expiration date cvv and all the numbers to be matched so they could be missing out and we could have multiple different reasons coming out of it too hey either they got the number right but the card was already terminated or yeah. it didn't match anything specific but they would eventually catch at least 5 to 10% i would say and then they know that okay this thing is working then they know that okay this 5% of the cards they have those card numbers which is think about it from a huge industry scale perspective it's huge yeah and one dollar transaction like customers like i personally wouldn't know if a dollar transaction happened on my statement because i don't see my statement on a daily basis yeah all of a sudden like we see our $100 transactions or $200 transactions because they know our card numbers or what they could do is they could just use that 5% they don't want to be caught themselves they would just use this 5% to do $1 transactions and probably they would have gotten successful with 1000 transactions that's $1000 for them okay so that's how they do these sophisticated attacks but our model right when the mom and pop store could be your next door or something so from an individual perspective the score wouldn't have gone drastically up but the fraud models they do catch in a sophisticated way seeing that okay this merchant keeps popping up and they didn't had any transactions before like in a such a huge scale so that's when it'll start elevating the score by then if you think about it i wouldn't say like too late but at least some of the transactions would have gone through already exactly yeah so there is no right answer saying that hey because we as a humans we always couldn't keep an eye out every hour or every minute yeah so i think it's important to understand where are the risk factors like how much threshold can we let it go through and take controls from there got it so this sounds very close to a brute force of attack that people used to do on passwords right it sounds yeah. similar to that because you're kind of guessing things and they'll keep brute force yeah. hitting the particular server right i'm surprised that there are no controls at the merchant end which is what you are talking about that probably they don't have yeah. as many controls as they should have right yeah if you think about it i think the fraud is overseen on the merchant side because i feel like merchants need to be educated too let's say if a large dollar transactions comes in if instead of using $1 what if they're using like $90 exactly and even if they don't get successful with 99% 1% is still like very harmful yeah. not just for the financial institution because we can go ahead and so chargeback is again telling the merchant saying that customer is not authorized so we need the money to go back so there is a chargeback fees too so it's actually expensive for merchant so i personally think that the merchants as a whole also needs to understand how fraud works and how costly it is yeah okay so basically when you are saying card not presented so how would somebody do a bin attack on a mom and pop store how are they getting access to that because they are a mom and pop store would be using a pos terminal right and possibly yeah. typically are not necessarily connected to the internet or maybe they are connected in the back end but encrypted to that right yeah. what is the point that they attack because in a website and password i can visualize that somebody is entering the password or basically hijacking the back end uh, connection right but in a mom and pop store how does that happen so usually for the mom and pop store they mostly attack the card not something on their website i can give you like an example of a mom and pop store so it could be an online bookstore or something that comes on top of my mind is i'm a blogger and i wanted to sell my book in online where i open up an online website and then i put hey if you want to buy my book this is go to this just enter your details and we are good to go this could be like something that are very new merchants yeah or these could be something that they don't really focus more on the online site and that's when they see this vulnerability on the online website where 
okay, I think we could use this to whatever her program that we have to run it over here and then do it a large scale. Yeah, I understand, I understand. So I'm like, this reminds me, and again, probably I'm having a dialogue here rather than, I'm probably not an expert at this, but what I'm thinking out loud here is probably there could be a scoring to the merchant itself, whether the merchant has good controls or not. And let's say somebody who doesn't have any controls could have a low scoring and then any transaction that they can have a lower threshold, right? I'm guessing that's what the modeling team does anyway, right? Yeah. As I said, there is no one right solution for it because <laughs> there could actually be one or two customers who are legitimately trying to do the transaction over there, trying to buy my book and we are blocking them or anything because we've seen a fraud attack from before. They should understand that, okay, there will be a fraud coming in place, but how much of that risk can we take in? Okay, cool. So let's go to a different topic itself. So I keep hearing in the fraud industry, a third party fraud, second party fraud, first party fraud, right? Yeah. So one, I would love yeah. to understand if you can explain what are these types of fraud and how would you differentiate them? And what is probably out of these types of frauds, what is more challenging to counter? Honestly, every fraud is challenging because <laughs> there, are, there are more creative ways nowadays than 10 years back on how sophisticated they're trying to be. And it's just we are trying to catch up on <laughs> stopping them. So let me start off by saying how the fraud actually goes by. So let's say if you are a startup or a neo bank that you're trying to get the customers and you've become from a small scale startup to a medium scale startup. And now the main thing is how to stop the fraud. I feel the first kind of fraud is identity fraud. It basically happens during the onboarding process where the fraudster has access to the customer's identity information. He probably has information related to his SSN, phone number and everything. And it's not even a surprise that they could read the OTPs too these days because we've been seeing that, oh, fraudsters can actually read our phone OTPs because we thought it was secure yeah. from before. Yeah. So even the, so the first thing is the identity fraud where either they're trying to open up a new account or trying to create a new loan. And the problem with this is, let's say they're trying to open up a new loan and they're trying to get the money out from the loan they opened. They even have access to the customer's bank account. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what happens is they take this money and they put it in the customer bank account and then they immediately move it to a different places. Okay. Oh, wow. But yeah, right. that could happen too. So when I say like identity fraud, it could be that they have access to all their information and... It's just that they might not have a few things like some of the key factors I tend to think are like email address or phone number or all this. They could have necessary information, but they couldn't have an email, but yeah. it's easy to open up an email, right? So they open up an email and they try to verify their email verification, everything. And now the loan is approved. And then once they got the money, it goes back to the customer's bank and from there move to different places. So that is a risky one. But this is the first kind of fraud that I see, identity fraud. And then the second is account takeover, the major one. I'm sure like most of us are familiar with it, but this yeah. is after opening up your account. Let's say I opened up my account like two years back and I don't really use it often now. It's just that I use it only for like few transactions now and then, but yeah. I think I haven't used it in a year. And then I suddenly see my account being taken over. What could happen is they could probably open up my account using my login credentials mm -hmm. and they might not have my password yet but they do have my email so they would try to reset my password and the reset 
password could be either through OTP or email verification or anything which they do have access to. Yeah. And then what they would do is they would probably go there, change their phone numbers. Mm-hmm. You might never know. And later on, the thing is, since I'm not actively monitoring it, I don't know what is happening to my account. And then yeah. suddenly I get these payment or usually most of us, they do monthly payments. And then suddenly on from my bank account, like a payment going to this, I'm like, I didn't even use this. Like, where did this come from? Yeah, yeah. And you could be too late or so that's usually the account takeover. So I feel these two are like one of the most important ones. And the other one that I usually see is synthetic fraud too. Synthetic fraud is having all your information but you're creating a completely new person out of it. So let's say they have my SSN phone number and everything. My name is Varun, but they would create someone called Ravi with all this information. And then they would actually use this, create like a completely new person to open up a completely new loan account. But Mm -hmm. since your SSN and everything, it belongs to me. I would like if anything default happens, that will come to me. Okay, yeah. so they take the loan, but on the bureau side or to everyone, to the financial institution, you are the one who is liable, basically. Yeah. So why would they use just your name? Why would they need to create it? So how is it different from the first identity fraud that you talked about? Again, this is not as common as identity or ATO. It's just that they might not have access to their bank accounts. So they would have opened up bank account with another name and they wanted to use that same information uh-huh. so that the bank account matches too. Oh, okay. So they already opened a bank account. And because when you're going to give a loan, you're going to check whether that business bank account's name yeah. matches to your name. And yeah, so because has- usually these are all the controls in place for like financial situations to see, hey, we just don't send money to anyone, right? It's to make sure we have controls in place to, okay, if this bank matches to the actual customer who is speaking or if, if it's like a completely different person or anything like that, we don't want to do that. So I feel like the fraudsters, like know yeah, how <laughs> the controls work and then they try to find those little nitty gritties saying that, okay, I think there is a space over here. I just want to say one thing, but with the neo banking and stuff, the thing is important is stopping fraud is important, but also the customer experience is important too. Yeah. So it's a right balance makes us a little hard. Okay. Got it. You briefly talked about that fraudsters know what controls we have in financial institutions or the process itself, right? They're experts on fraud controls itself, which is right for them to be able to, at that level, they should be an expert of that. I wanted to understand how the fraudsters that you're seeing, like I would expect like in previous years when the controls were not that many, you could have an opportunistic fraud where somebody stumbled upon an opportunity to get money out. But now it seems like there has to be somebody motivated and expertise in doing it. So is there a trend that Mm -hmm. you see in the last six years that you've been working, how fraudsters themselves are evolving? Oh, definitely. So first of all, it brings back to like how internet has grown in the past couple of years and how sophisticated everything has been, like how easy it is. So that also means from the financial standpoint, the loans are increasing, though credit cards usage is all time high. And that also means that the fraudsters are also evolved. Before it was just like a stolen card and then you could get, hey, I've stolen a card and then just do some kind of fraud. But as I said, from the first one, like bin attack, they could actually buy like card numbers from a dark web and then use that for doing any kind of transactions. Definitely the fraud has been evolved a lot from what I've seen in the last six years. But one thing that I've noticed personally was there's always like a test thing the fraudsters do. And this is from my understanding, like just to make 
that the fraudsters usually try to test for how their strategy works on a fewer scenarios and then they try to do a, like a wide scale but this doesn't happen all the time like sometimes they just go all in but from what i've seen they tend to start off small and then go from there yeah and and you also talked about technology how it's been evolving right and obviously the talk of the town now is generative ai right so what's your initial feelings about how the tech is either for you or for the fraudster itself obviously generative ai has grown especially in the last one year i think it's one of the biggest revolutionary like right after iphone is what i think personally <laughs> because it is really helpful even on our day to day basis if you wanted to do anything but on the fraud it keeps changing if we have access to generative ai even the fraudsters might have access to generative ai exactly and it is a very powerful tool i can say that it could really help us in stopping the fraud because one of the major things is like anomaly detection if there is any anomalies from a daily different pattern and i know we have like models running right now fraud models or anything that able to catch those but i think with generative ai it could be more powerful and the one other use case that i think with generative ai is matching up with like biometric verification or anything like that, that could be really helpful because i could say that it could really help us in catching those biometric verifications but if you think about from the fraudster side now they have this generative ai to create a face of mine and then create a loan application like mm. who would stop that so yeah. i yeah. think there is no right way and i couldn't say that generative ai could completely stop fraud it won't do that end of the day the manual processing needs to be done but it's just that it would be really helpful for us with finding those nitty gritty patterns using generative ai so the other type of fraud that i would love to understand a little bit and probably i'm not the best person i actually live in singapore and so my knowledge about the us payment secure system is also very limited in that sense right but i wanted to understand the one type of fraud which is around ach fraud right and i would love to hear some more details about how this fraud happens and how you guys fight it so ach as is a payment you usually if you have a credit card balance or anything like that you wanted to pay it off or pay your balances that's like an ach transaction you're doing from your bank account to your credit card balance so one is thing it the uh, same bank or a different bank it can be a different bank so let's say i have a chase account and then i have a wells fargo bank account i'm trying to pay off my credit card a chase credit card using wells fargo so i'm doing an ach transaction for that so the thing with the ach it was always considered to be safe because we need to have routing number account numbers and everything but the problem is there could be a returns fraud too saying that hey i didn't do this authorization i didn't authorize that to go through this ach transactions but we already cleared the balance for the customer and then okay from the credit card standpoint it might not see too much but let's say from the deposit standpoint you say hey i've moved my money from one account to another bank account and then the customer or the fraudsters would have probably taken that money from that deposit account and moved it to his personal or to multiple accounts but then the customer says that hey i didn't do any of these transactions from my bank account so the bank who he sent the money from they wanted to get those money back because he said it's unauthorized the loss is from the one who is in the middle that's what happens the fraudsters might have access to both accounts and then he did an ach transactions from one account to another account and then moved it from here it could be a part of your money laundering too we never know yeah yeah but it's important to know that having the right controls in place can really help that but usually ach is you could say more trusted 
because it's one customer saying that hey i know that personally i have sent this money from this account to this account mm-hmm. okay got it and there's also a new type of payment that's also coming up right the rtp i believe real time payment that that is being tested right now i think it came, mm-hmm. came into existence in the last one year right again this is probably not related to fraud itself but i wanted to understand yeah. how the ecosystem is evolving from message to rtp itself it hasn't been like a very wide scale from what i've seen because the fraud from the ach is still comparably less compared to the other or from transactional fraud or anything like that so i felt like it isn't wide scale yet but you never know the fraud keeps growing yeah okay the other thing that i want to talk about was about third party data and how it can help in a startup of how they can fight the fraud itself and how do you use third party data itself oh i think no matter how much data you have it's really important so that it could be very helpful in identifying if it's like a truly fraud or any false positive or anything like that but there is no one solution saying that hey i think if we get all this data we could able to stop the fraud no that couldn't happen but it's important to know that we consider all these what kind of data is important for us do we think if the email is associated to the right customer or if the login they're doing it from is it like a valid login or is it like a proxy coming in as a startup we wouldn't know in the initial days so yeah. that's where the third party data come in where they could help us get this information and from there we could use this to determine if whichever the new application that comes in if it's like a truly fraud or it could be false positive i've seen people doing weird things that we thought okay it's truly fraud but coming up with so you wouldn't always rely on the data but it's important that all this can help us determine if it's okay considering all these factors because one of the third party might give us how the email is connected to the customer or one of yeah. the other third party can give us like hey how the login ip is coming in is it actually like legitimate or not so you just have to combine all these and then make that conclusion saying that hey i think based upon all these variables and factors i think this is truly fraud or it might not be fraud okay wonderful wonderful my final question is probably and again this is something that i ask all my guests is what is something i mean being in the fraud space right what is something that is frustrating to you that you think that should have happened and the, from a technology or a regulation or any of this point of view what is your frustration that you think that it is easily solvable but it's not happened oh that's actually a great question so i think for me when i initially started on the fraud so my frustration was how could we think this control has to be in place but you cannot the controls not in place because you think hey i think this is like basic i'm just giving like an example let's say we are changing a phone number on an application but then there is no control in place saying that hey you can change it like this there is no like a verification happening isn't that like normal saying that hey if you're changing a phone number you have to make sure it's it's connected to the right customer it's connected yeah. to the customer who is present and that felt like very frustrating to me on the initial days like all these are normal hey if you have a new application if you're changing a your phone number it's mandatory to do anything but there are a few way a few things that still happens thinking that oh i think over here i think you need to do some control in place either some verification or a biometric thing like makes sense but as a person who fights fraud you think it's common but if you think from business perspective it's a customer experience too that's important too so you need to give like a friction you don't want to give too much friction to the customer exactly so i understand like from a business perspective it's not really needed but from a fraud standpoint oh i think it's really important over there so i think it's a right balance to see that hey if we do this over here 
how many customers are we like losing and also how much fraud losses we might have so i think having the right balance is important understand that was really insightful thank you so much for spending the time with me mm-hmm. and i uh, would love to have you some other time back again and thank you again uh, have a good day thank you so much you've been really great all the podcast was really informational and really helpful in my personal work too keep doing what you're doing thank you varun and see you